Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, the podcast where we learn from cybersecurity experts how to stay safe, private, and secure on the cloud and in code. CSCP is hosted by Francesco Cipollone, your cybersecurity friend with a passion for all things cyber and sharing stories of other professionals with you. This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISO and security engineers act fast, prevent burnout, and implement DevSecOps at the speed of cloud. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click. Let's dive in. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast. My name is Francesco Cipollone. I'm your host today. And today we dive in a little bit on a side topic that uh, we haven't talked in a while, that is fundamentally the executive view or the executive board and a role that is kind of growing in board nowadays due to the maybe lack of experience in cybersecurity or confusion in what is a cybersecurity role and how much the board should know and should everybody be experienced. So the role is um, the CyberNet or non-executive director on cybersecurity. And today I have the pleasure and the honor to have Oli Whitehouse with me uh, that has had quite a career in cyber, has touched a lot of organization and, and has done a lot of research uh, from BlackBerry to Symantec to NCC Group more recently. But I'll let Oli introduce itself. Oli, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, thank you for having me, firstly. Yeah, so I, you know, I've been very fortunate to have a career spanning over 25 years in cyber. So I started at the age of um, 17 during the dot-com boom, working out that we could make more money pen testing dot-com companies than building them. Um, <laughs> and the rest, as they say, is history. But no, joking aside, you know, so I spent probably about um, two-thirds of my career in the services side, so in consultancy or managed services. And obviously, yes, you know, 10 and a half years at NCC Group most recently, uh, but then obviously end user. So working very much as an applied individual in, in, in research and in, in helping secure technology soup to nuts. And I always joke now that, um, you know, I operate boardroom to binary so I can still code and still use Ghidra. Um, but I'm also, you know, equally comfortable discussing FTSE 100 strategy and, and, and challenging uh, operational boards as to their governance. Brilliant. And in your experience over the year, um, have you seen kind of the role change or how did you start and how did you get to the point where you are today? If somebody wants to become a cybernet or or get to the level where you are, um, you know, you, you've been advising the government and you've been giving speech to the government about the cybersecurity strategy. So how does one get to that point from pure techie uh, or from a pen tester? How, how does somebody grow into that role? Yeah, yeah. And I think that, yeah, there's a couple. There's, there's no magic trick. Firstly, the, the second is I, I have a very kind of simple approach to life, and I'm inspired by a very cheesy movie from the 2000s called <laughs> Pay It Forward. And the principle is, is if you just help people generally, you get invited into rooms. 
And I think what I recognized was in pen testing, it was it was no negative thing, right? You were finding faults in, and it wasn't broadly speaking helpful to a lot of the consumers of that information. And mm -hmm. learning how to represent those findings in a way which is constructive, um, it invariably kind of allows you to make more or have more impact and make better progress. And so just take it from there. And, and over the years, just have helped lots of people. And they've ended up floating into very senior roles whilst learning around the mechanics of business. And again, going from that purest techie perspective of you must fix this. Oh, my God, lol, mm -hmm. WTF to understanding the kind of the realities of, of, of um, the challenges and the trade offs that firms have to make around risk. And being able to adjust one's language to be able to operate in that environment, right? And and so the kind of the edge that you have is you have this deep technical understanding of really mm -hmm. how things really work, but actually you can wear a suit, get your hair cut, uh, you know, and and operate in the business environment uh, along with those peers that you need to ultimately influence and and convince and control. Great. No, thank you for that. And I think there is a good friction point, but a good chance right now in the industry where organization and cyber organization are getting more towards the business, but the other way around, the business right now have really the perception of cyber, even though might not have the experience, and hence the role of the cyber net. So what is, what is a net, first of all, and what is a cyber net? Yeah, so it's a great question. So often in, in kind of organizational governance, so in, in charities, they'll be known as trustees. In private mm -hmm. corporations, they'll be known as non-execs. So effectively, they're directors and they're officers of the company who aren't operationally responsible for running it, but they are legally <laughs> liable for it. Uh, right. to, and so they're there to service often the, uh, the interests of, of three communities. So one is the external um, stakeholders. So investors would be would be a great example um, customers and then the employees and they're effectively there to act as a governance function to hold the executive who are running the firm to make sure that they're being it is being done so in a way which is appropriate and and is well run and obviously then a cyber net comes in where you have a, a deeper understanding maybe the most because of the systemic nature of the risk where you can come in and challenge the CISO or the CSO um, in a way which um, other more generalist non-execs may not be able mm -hmm. to because they don't have sufficient technical grounding or operational experience. Right. And in that kind of role, do you end up building relationship with the CISO or, do, or are you there as a scrutiny? Well, you know, it always has to be a relationship because, again, I think what you would recognize is, and, it, and it's true for a consultancy, you know, mm -hmm. if, if you go in and you are uh, overly judgmental, aggressive, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the shields are naturally going to go up. And, and, and again, this is no one, no one is a fault here. You, you, you know, no one, does, many people do not do things out of malice. So you need to build the relationship with the CISO and that has to be built on trust. But then also see, equally, there has to be transparency because the CISO will be trying to achieve things. Mm -hmm. The firm will be trying to achieve things uh, and, and they've got to meet in the middle somewhere. And, and so, no, you know, naturally, there's going to be a degree of independence in terms of the assessment and the reporting. But that doesn't need to be overly um, kind of aggressive or, or anything like that. Right. And have you seen in your years and in, in the role 
a little bit of a distance and a challenge between you know the executive committee or the, or the CISO and uh, the 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 cybernet or kind of a welcoming of okay finally we have somebody and align the board to help me get in my message across yeah and i think it very much it, i think there's a spectrum uh, that you would recognize there so definitely i think firstly one of the interesting observations i would make is that cso's are rarely on the executive committee discuss whether okay. or not that's appropriate or not they're often minus one or minus two in my experience from the executive committee sometimes tucked away under the cfo or similar and there's a question and a debate going on whether or not that that continues to be appropriate um uh, for, for for all the obvious reasons i think you know some some cso's will see it as a having an ally you know having a ned that really understands the problems and will leverage them others will be you know naturally defensive don't check my homework you know, I, I, I'm, I'm taking care of everything, you know, don't kind of, um, you know, don't, don't come and cause any turbulence in my world. Um, but often, you know, when you bring the value that uh, kind of a portfolio net often does, which is connecting them to others in the industry that can help them so they can learn from mm -hmm. them, as well as them helping achieve what they also want in their own career, let alone having better and more restful nights. Um, those kind of initial for where there is a little bit of you know not no no, no thank you um, they they often open up right and a restful night for a CISO I think is a rare rare thing <laughs> to see oh well, you know we, we we have we have to we have to aim for the moon even if we only get to Watford <laughs> right and and for whoever is not listening and, and in London what what is it just a little bit about uh, outside just on the outskirts of London <laughs> Yeah, a terrible British colloquialism in terms of distance there. I do apologise, yes. <laughs> After inch and feet, there is what foot. <laughs> That's right. And maybe on the on the flip side, on the board side, what have you seen over the years? Um, have you seen a growth in terms of executive and understanding of cyber and to which extent have they grown into that concept or have we remained very superficial on everything is a risk or maybe we see headlines we jump on the headlines no so i think you know uh, you, you know loathe it or love it you know ransomware has been a good thing because i think you know the the impact that that is able to have and the fact that there has been so much impact across all sectors has meant that there is at least um a greater understanding as the is is to the potential and then by virtue of that, it's driven greater engagement around crisis management. And so I think what we've seen is far more what we would refer to as goal team exercises. So actual simulations involving the executive and the non-executive on, on how we would actually deal with those incidents. In terms of um, understanding of the fundamentals, it's really superficial still, you know, phishing, you know, the really residual human factors issues. But there, there's probably a... a a point there which is probably do they need to know more than that well not always i think mm -hmm. in, in all cases but they do need to understand what the risk is who it's likely to be perpetrated by likelihood how it will manifest and then ultimately how that risk can be in part transferred out and so again you know uh, non-execs will have an understanding of what the insurance protection is of the organization and the fact that cyber insurance is a thing and policy cover they will understand those things and can draw approximations and so mm -hmm. um, you know, don't worry, they're not going to be running Metasploit anytime soon, but, you know, there's a far greater operational 
understanding of, of how cyber risk more generally manifests and where the kind of the choke points are, you know, things like supply chain, mergers and acquisitions, key supply, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So there is, there is still an This episode is brought to you by the generosity of Phoenix Security Limited. Phoenix helps startups and enterprises solve complex software security supply chain visibility by leveraging the power of correlation and contextualization. Phoenix platform connects to your repositories, scanners, and cloud, correlates all the information, and provides you with a prioritized list of vulnerabilities that need to be addressed first. Discover how Phoenix Security helps CISOs and developers remove friction and maximize the use of DevSecOps professionals at phoenix.security. Phoenix Security. Correlate, contextualize, and act on risk with one click understanding or a better understanding on from a risk perspective rather than of course the technicality of how to conduct a phishing attempt or do I need to run a pen test but maybe they know what a pen test is they do know what a pen test is and increasingly and I think you know we have regulation to thank for this um, increasingly can consume red team reporting because again if you look Mm -hmm. in in UK sectors and, and wider European as well as Australian and Singaporean now Financial services all now have regulatory mandated red teaming. Um, in the UK, we obviously have telecommunications, civil nuclear, civil aviation, there's other sectors again similarly. So again, they will understand that. They will mm-hmm. understand, broadly speaking, um, Russian, Chinese intent, organized crime intent and capability. Um, and so, you know, I would say net positive, right? Okay, no, that's great. And I think you touch on a good point that is the role of regulation. And I think I wanted to take probably this chance to also plug in the quite strong stance the US have taken in, in the role of regulation. And your view and opinion on, on where the UK government and the European um, instance have taken, like Germany has driven a lot on, on critical national infrastructure. Maybe the UK is, is pushing for it, but it's lagging a little bit behind, while the US is really taking a strong stance on software supply chain. So where do you see us going as, a, as an industry in the UK and Europe? Yeah, so I think, you know, if we look at where the UK has got to, we do have the Telecom Security Act now, which is enshrined in law, which has some really robust mandated technical security requirements for, for mm-hmm. uh, CNI tel- telco providers. Um, I think, you know, what you will recognize is, is that uh, governments, I think, in the round have recognized that there's going to have to be increasing regulation in order to make sure that the free market does what it should, because a free market left its own devices, we're all focused, broadly speaking, on growth and profitability. Mm-hmm. Cyber is, broadly speaking, a cost, and so it, it you know, it, it potentially reduces agility, so limits growth and or kind of rips um, uh, some of the profit out. Uh, I think, you know, we are seeing with GDP, uh, GDPR2 uh, and, and NIS2 and, and similar, you know, we are seeing increasing recognition that uh, as the threat adapts and as technology becomes ever more pervasive, we will, we will need more debate right software bill of materials is that way we should uh, the u.s should have laid its bets will it will it yield probably not in the way that they want it to mm-hmm. um but it is as a sign i think what that does signal more importantly is the u.s has historically been very re- very reticent to 
to do any type of regulation around cyber. And Colonial Pipeline and other big events like that, and obviously Solar Winds were a big wake up call for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and now they've kind of joined the party. They are one of the largest markets on the planet, right? So any regulation that they set has a net positive benefit for, for global security, one would argue. Right. And I think there is a lot of debates around the original intent of SPOM that was maybe softer bill of material that end up being you know, a regulation thing. So where, where there is a regulation, there is evolution of the regulation and interpretation of the regulation, I think. Well, I agree. You know, I, I yeah, I'm not sold. I think S-bombs, uh, they solve a thing. Uh, I'm not, I'm not sure I can quantify its value in the cyber sense, you know, unless we have another log4j and it allows us to be able to do the database query to identify all the instances of the particular log4j library. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that software bill of materials would have mitigated solar winds. I'm not sure it would have mitigated a, a load of other threats, right? And so, um, but you know, th- th- they've gone down this this particular road, and and kudos to them. Um, they'll make it work, right? But they'll have but they'll have better data than anyone by virtue of this. <laughs> so we'll all be proven okay. at some point, I'm sure. <laughs> Can you use that data? Actually, is is that data available to? anything other than, you know, I need to produce a spot, I need to regulate it. And then there is the vulnerability exchange that now is growing um, as a source of regulation. But fundamentally, there is a lot of information out there that is uncollided with each other. So asset management, back to asset management problem in, in, in the whole original space. And I think that's where the SBOM originally wanted to go as, as the first push to actually software asset management. And, and and I agree, you know, um, but uh, at the moment there is information advantage within certain companies, S-bombs and, and that being distributed erodes that, right? And there will be some bright sparks who, who's smarter than, than any of us that will work out a way to leverage that data for, for net positive. And so I am a, I'm a big fan of structured data, mm-hmm. um, which is available and open to support security endeavors. Um, you know, because I think, you know, we recognize that that's often been the hindrance in, in a lot of cases of having sufficiently large data sets. Yeah, but then on the other side is, as a business, how do I consume that large amount of data that is out there? What do I even consume it? So what is, well, as you said, what is the net positive of all that data? I mean, as we know, that there'll, be a, there'll be a plethora of new startups that are consuming that data and working out how to extract a signal for you, dear end user megacorp, who will then buy that rather than doing all that processing and analysis yourself. Um, uh, and again, you know, whether or not that will be, you know, a Nessus like kind of tenable type firm, or will it be down at, um, you know, a lower kind of, you know, will there be nat- native integrations with Sentinel or, or, or similar mm-hmm. discuss? Brilliant. And on, on that subject, has that conversation kind of steered boards, in your opinion, on more software supply chain and software risk? Because there's always been kind of an undercutting or, or underrepresented element of board maybe in CISO understand more network and infrastructure and pen testing because of the regulation, but software is really new. And we see more software attacks, software supply chain attacks. So has the board kind of perceived that now there is another player in the in the supply chain issues? 
No, I think, you know, if, if I look at the quality of conversations that, that often occur still, so there's no differentiation at board level often between software supplier and supplier. You know, mm -hmm. so it'll all be wrapped up in the in the generics of, of the supply chain. There's that big amorphous mass over there that's terrifying and we can't control it and we don't have entirely contractual cover. Most of the conversations that, that I've been part to a board level still revolve around asset management, level of vulnerability in an estate. Um, you know, I would say arguably earlier stage hygiene aspects of, of cyber rather than the next wave of super controls that will allow us to go, you know, I think you speak to any organization of, of any reasonable size and of any reasonable age, and they still, you know, ask them to quantify how much of their estate is under management, how much, what percentage of that estate is actually actively patched within what time mm -hmm. frame, you know, where where don't they have multi-factor authentication? And you you end up kind of going round the loop on 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 that still in 2023, which is relatively terrifying. <laughs> but um, and you, you touch point on on the level of quality of conversation around vulnerabilities, uh, risks. So what is more prominent in at the board level? Are they getting into the nitty gritty of like, oh, how many vulnerabilities do we have, or, or do they even understand that concept? or they want more risk-based kind of qualitative information? Yeah, so I think it's it's more it's more risk-based discussions, but it, one of the indicators often is, you know, one of the things that could be metricated as a dashboard is how many vulnerabilities do we have and what's the burn mm -hmm. rate down on those and those types of things. But often, you know, the, the meat of the discussion centers around, you know, can insert adversary that, you know, worst nightmares do this to us after they read the headline of it happening to someone else last week? And, and then, you know, what are the controls of we, that we have in place, which mean that wouldn't happen to us or would reduce the likelihood? Or, you know, it, it's, the, it's those types of conversations that are, uh, that are more so had, uh, but it is often driven by headlines. You know, mm -hmm. it's, yeah, I sat on a board and this happened here. I read that this happened last week to this organization. The regulator has issued this, you know, those types of things. It is often what ends up driving those kind of monthly or bi-monthly discussions. So it's, it's very reactive to the headline of the log4j or the solar wind attack or the other thing that could happen. And then are yeah. we are we going to be the next Uber? Are we going to be the next, exactly. um, I don't Twitter know, yeah, exactly. All, all of that, you, you know, and then coupled with and then often you, you can kind of steer those conversations, which is, uh, but what if we are right? And then, mm -hmm. you know, uh, would we be willing to pay the ransom if we had to? And that ends up end up it's a, becoming quite a rich conversation, actually, because, you know, that's where directors feel like they can add some value, you know, if that makes right. sense to those types of conversations because of all the complexities. And, and as a CISO, how do you suggest and recommend to CISO practitioner that, that kind of had that interaction with the board to actually steer the conversation in that positive terms? So instead of being reactive and say, no, it's everything under control, we're never going to be that into more, yes, that's a possibility, we need to be cyber resilient. Because that's, I think, in 2022, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And are you prepared for it? So are you cyber resilient? And what are you going to do? How are you going to prepare it? And how, what are you going to do? What do you think? Yeah, and I think, I think you're bang on with that. You know, it is very much taking the board on a, on a journey, which is 
you know, we're going to have security incidents. And again, any organization of any size, of any complexity is naturally going to have incidents. The role of the CISO is to not uh, don their, their underwear on the outside and stop the organization from having what it is, is to allow the blast radius of those incidents to be contained sufficiently and to not be um, material to the firm. Uh, but then talk, giving a sense of likelihood, cadence and impact of those incidents. And that could be based on one's own experience within the organization, as well as kind of more thematic points from, from, from the industry as a whole, both geographically and internationally, I think, I think is very important. And I think, you know, for the, the, the practitioner CISO, the thing to think about is, again, you know, non-execs non and, and arguably seniors in, inside firms, they like to feel clever to a certain extent, and they do have a wealth <laughs> of experience. And so don't always present everything as being fine. Present them with challenges which you are seeking their, their input and counsel on, and yeah. that will just build a, a deeper set of kind of collaborative relationships more generally. And they will have experience and, and, and insight on, on things which you don't, and, 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 and suck it up, right? You know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great thing. Um, uh, but but more generally, I think you know we are we are going to get boards increasingly. We are seeing a generational shift now in their technological understanding, and I think that's mm -hmm. net positive because I think you know even if you rewind even five years ago, boards really didn't understand they weren't immersive, right? And in the UK, we've just gone through a prime ministerial change, and arguably our current prime minister is the first one that really you know has grown up immersed in technology in the same way. So they can expect more challenge and a, and a deeper level of interest and willingness to engage and working out how they're going to contend with that and, uh, and interact with that is probably a, a good new life skill to develop if they haven't already. Interesting. And I think I was having this conversation a couple of podcasts ago on the fact that there is almost like a perception of even what an asset means or what something means, depending on your age or where you were born fundamentally and we had a generation of people coming from uh traditional infrastructure or traditional patching and server admin then you had a generation of maybe software development then cloud and now we're going back to software development and, and, and kind of a hybrid so we're expecting the next wave of executive to be much more uh tech aware or yes, are we already there yeah i think we're going to see it a whole wave of executives that are deeply familiar with what digital transformation looks like and actually understands what that meets in, in practice. You know, I'm very fortunate and I see into an awful lot of organizations of different types and, and I can look inside local government, central government and the private sector. And, and it's there now, right? They, they've seen those big programs that have stuffed and failed. They've understood the terminology. They understand what cloud is, you know, you know, and, they, and again, driven by the headlines but you know people are going to ask automation you know rpa machine learning all of these things they they will be challenging because they mm -hmm. the productivity gains for the firm or perceived productivity gains um you, you're going to see this more so and, and again you know i think if i rewind back to my prior role if i looked at the next generation of non-execs that came in you know there was a higher representation of uh, those who are deep science and technology background than had ever occurred previously. Uh, okay. Because historically financial, right, is where non-execs right. came from. And I think we're seeing an S&T um, generation start to come through. No, that's, that's interesting. And on that topic, actually, 
when do you advise an organization or, or somebody else that is ready for a non-exec? Well, and and I think you, you know sometimes it's mandated, right? If you're so you have to. <laughs> Uh, but I think it, it's when they get to a level of maturity where they want to show good governance. And it's a bit like, when do you first when do you install your first CISO? When do you install your first second line function? When you, mm-hmm. when you break that operational and, and then governance piece, you know, uh, non-execs, I think, are, are similar. And I've, again, you know, I've, I've seen them be introduced for companies generating 15 million, um, obviously, you know, in revenue, which is tiny by comparison, up all the way through that spectrum. Um, it's, it's often led by the managing director, chief exec, and their, and their own aspirations, really, uh, coupled with how regulated or, or what their customers are asking for and some other kind of market forcing functions. So it's really a function to audit to to, um, to have an external eye on the company, but also an external helper and, and something, a diligence role. Yes, and uh, yeah, so I, my first non-exec role um, was exactly that. Like the, the managing director at the time wanted to, um, had a great team under him, but wanted to basically bring in a bunch of um, discrete peers uh, with dif- different skills. So he brought me in as a technologist. He brought in someone with a finance background, someone with a great HR background, um, someone with a great commercial background. And all we did was we brought that experience to help the business mm-hmm. evolve and, and kind of accelerate its growth almost. And, and so, and again, that's why it's very much tied often to managing director or owner ambition um, outside of, of where it's mandated. Right. And maybe on the other topic that is maybe more familiar to us or some other people that have been working in startup, um, have you seen a wave of maybe non-exec that are more hands-on on early stage startup or investors that's taken that role? So funnily enough, I had a call um, earlier this afternoon in the UK time with a venture capitalist. And I think they're the ones that drive that, if I'm being honest. So the conversations I have with private equity and VC are more likely to um, inject some of that talent from a non-exec perspective into a startup, where as part of a a seed or a series A activity um, where where they feel that the management team would benefit from from some external coaching and and advice and support. And so I think, you know, maybe that's sometimes the benefit of taking external investment rather than trying to grow grow organically. But I think, you know, and again, there's there's often a propensity for, I would say, our, our US venture capitalists to be a little bit more involved than the slightly more conservative European venture capitalists who are a bit more, here's my money, you know, here's my money, but then I'm just going to leave you to, to run your business and maybe sit as a traditional non-exec. Whereas I think the US want to de-risk as much as possible their investment and give the organization the best chance of succeeding. And so we'll lavish it with a with a love bomb of talent um, in various shades of, of non-execness. Brilliant. And and how can and which kind of organization can can really benefit from a cybernet? You know, you see in technology-driven organizations that never had a CISO, or kind of what kind of techno what kind of organization actually really benefits in the most yeah, so uh, startup? I, 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 well, and I think it I think it really is a it's a broad spectrum. So um uh, I, I would joke often it's the larger organizations that have the more traditional boards 
that benefit the most, right? Because they're often really highly regulated uh, and or there's an expectation that it's all naturally fine, yet they often carry the largest amounts of technical debt um, mm. for, for, for all the reasons that we would understand, um, but uh, often struggle to get true independence at the board level. You know, I think actually startups, interestingly, they carry very little operational debt often. They're cloud first, you know, they understand what infrastructure as code is, you know, all of these things and are benefiting from, from modern design patterns. And, and often for them, it is just telling, it's almost just helping them when, when to introduce certain controls which are appropriate to their risk as well as their stage of funding and revenue. Uh, so they don't overcompensate too early because again, as mm -hmm. you know, as a startup, you should be carrying a healthy degree level of technical debt and risk because you're never quite sure the firm's going to make it, right? <laughs> and so it's often helping set that 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 barometer almost on the risk profile at, at that stage. But it's a lot, it's a lot less involved. It's often most valuable, very large, complex, you know, 20 year old organizations that benefit from cybernet the most because there's just you know a lot of dragons in there. Right. And probably they don't know what cyber means or that they, they need a little bit of education. And then maybe not technology aware, but they understand uh, risk. They, 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 they understand risk, but, but again, you know, point to me another systemic risk that pretty much every organization faces, right? There isn't many really that affect every organization of every type in, in every sector, in every geography. You know, one may say, you know, GDPR, but again, roots in cyber, health and safety for sure, but it's rare that all of your staff are going to die overnight, you know, where right. actually the cyber equivalent is the organization's entire systems can be lost in one fell swoop. And so, um, yes, they do understand risk, but, but again, you know, as you know, uh, quantification in cyber risk is still, you know, even with FAIR, is still quite embryonic, you know, and is not well practiced in a lot of organizations. Yeah, there is there is still, as you rightfully say, a lot of reliance on how many vulnerabilities you have, how quickly are you fixing, and that's about it. <laughs> you know, I, some of, you know, I, I always draw analogies between um, cyber and 1800s medicine, right? You know, we've got a lot of quackery in opinion at the moment and not a lot mm -hmm. of first principle science still. So, you know, a lot of the controls that we have even, you know, we don't know when they work against which threats with what caveats, you know, because we don't actually have the evidence bases which support them. A lot of them seem logically sound to do at a time. You know, the, the best work, well, one of the great works examples is passwords, you know. So we used to have what passwords that had to be gazillion characters long with, you know, be totally memorable, changed every 30 days. But no one actually had done the science and the research to show that humans could remember about four of them before they started to write them down because of those complexity requirements, right? And, and so but we, our industry and our controls frameworks are littered with these things. So we're doing things because probably they are good, but we don't know how good in reality. Right. And, and that's the journey we get to go on. And that's why the industry is so fascinating. No, it is. And, and I think you, you brought in a, an interesting topic that is how do you quantify the, the net effect or the, or the net value of a control or a non-control? And I think that's the maturity of the risk that or cyber risk quantification that is so immature. Um, and I think it, it's mostly 
nowadays gut feeling, as you mentioned, rightfully fair, is the first attempt to actually introduce a monetary and, and non-monetary value and kind of a probability of exploitation and an impact analysis into the field that is completely absent. Right now is like either you have it or you don't. <laughs> you don't have any well, concept of probability. I think it's the base of risk. <laughs> exactly right you know and, and this is this is the terrifying thing and this is where things like fair and others are you know a net positive i think but again you know it, it it's handfuls of people around the globe that do that well right you know but you can see the the shoots almost that it's going to start to take off and arguably that in part is going to be driven by cyber insurance and the losses that they have seen because they've written such poor book um you, you know is going to drive better Aquaturial and thus risk understanding more generally against what risks are mitigated with what controls because the, right. those evidence bases will be built. Right. And and the kind of the evidence and the maturity of the industry will be driven by what is not going to be insured or what will be insured. That's right. And people are feeling the pain now, right? That they previously got insurance and it's not being offered now because they've not actually dealt with in the intervening 12 months. Certain mm -hmm. um, certain risks that were that were previously identified, and 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 I think that will be a trend that will 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 continue will continue more broadly. And we know, you know, there's an next generation of cyber insurer that's coming. We know of one um, that's already able to write a book, which is about 25% better than most others, and they mandate things like continual scanning and those types of things, uh, as well as uh, remediation and similar. So, are you? In your opinion, do you see organizations that are able to demonstrate their risk profile or, or argument against a model that insurance have to be better off because they can reduce their premium? Or are you seeing organizations going down that path, especially on the financial where they have quant people? Yeah, uh, I'm not sure. We're, I think people are just great, grateful they can get insurance at the moment, if I'm being honest. Um, <laughs> Uh, I don't think people, anyone is as as bold as being able to. Um, <clears throat> I think you know, being able to get the level of cover uh, is is often the trick now that, that the organisations are wrestling with, and there are certain organisations are able to evidence that. And again, you know, what I will observe is some of the next generation financial services organisations are pretty slick operations. And it was an interesting point you made earlier. You know, every company is a technology company now, mm -hmm. right? And and those that, that have come without the past are often far better placed because, you know, they've learned the Netflix models of, of separating kind of compliance costs with, you know, cloud architecture patterns and those types of things. And, and they can just give the warm fuzzies because it's quite clear and evidence. They know what they've got. It's well controlled and governed. It's all happening through CRCD pipelines. And it isn't relied, uh, reliant on human processes in a low-cost-based country that is inherently fragile, which is what some <laughs> of the, the, the older organizations may be relying on. Right, and, and maybe less supply chain issue or potential e issue. E Although I don't know, like Circle CI this week, um, you know, how, how many organizations have been um, carefully mopping up and by having to roll all of those crypt key, uh, you know, all of those secrets and keys everywhere because of that breach, supply chain breach, right? Which is pretty material, right? We saw Slack, Okta, all, all, all secondary victims because of that. 
Yeah, and, and I think on that point, we start seeing a, a pattern, I guess, on the recent years. So is, is that pattern driven by the fact that we've gone so well at patching and identifying issues? So it's easier, it's much easier to actually inject a line of code in a library that is maintained by an open source, or is that a vector of attack that is kind of at the, at the grab of attacker nowadays? What do you think? Well, I just think that there, there, there's there's more attackers trying more things. You, you, you know, I, I really do. You, you know, I think if you look at, so um, we also had the PY Torch breach last week, was it? Or just before New Year? Um, we turned out that was a bug bounty that went awry. But, you know, there were four days where PY Torch, which was a machine learning library, had basically mm -hmm. a, 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 a reconnaissance implant in it. You know, um, so we just got more people pushing on more of the boundaries that we've got. And, and I think by virtue of that, I think it's ensuring the inherent fragility of it all. And so I think, yes, for some, it will be more tactical. So, again, you know, what we saw with the Chinese state, they did understand that the supply chain was weaker and you could breach one organization and gain access to many. So great ROI from them. Similarly, then Russia with SolarWinds. I think for others, there is just more organized criminal activity. There's initial access brokers. Like who knew there was ever going to be a whole supply chain in the criminal fraternity? And then one of that components being just the initial access brokers, right? And right. so naturally, you know, we're seeing now, um, I, I read reporting this week, which saw one, one framework exploiting 30 WordPress vulnerabilities just being sprayed everywhere just to see where they get in, right? Um, so I think it's just a new world. It's the tempo, it's the scale, it's the ferocity. It's, it's just gone up a level. And so we, we see more of it all over. And I think you, you brought a point that there is that the whole attacker industry, there is the two level that is nation state and non-nation state, but all of them are getting better at automating because they are digitally native. So there is a lot of occasional and very targeted one, but there is a lot of, you know, spray and pray and see where it hits. Yeah, you know, and we saw Rackspace having to migrate how many customers off of their hosted exchange environment, which was effectively a ransomware operation using a zero day in 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 Outlook Web Access. You know, come on, this is, yes, it's a, it's a new world, right? Granted, it was only a subversion on a mitigation, mm -hmm. but that, that was a big company that felt some pain. And, and it is quite clear, and we do see it, you know, um, about 18 months ago, uh, I remember there was a case where there was uh, organized crime targeting a zero day and a VPN device and end up doing the research to find out what the underlying vulnerability was because the vendor couldn't. Um, but, you know, this is the world where we've just got, you know, small clutches of criminals who are able to develop new capability and then use it at internet scale quite quickly. And, and yeah. you know, it keeps us on our toes, right? Yeah, and I think the automation part is is what is mostly interesting because it's pushing the boundary of the industry to actually react in an automated way and then maybe focus on the controls that are maybe more sophisticated. That is like, how do you chain three or four or five attacks? That is, you, you can't really automate that kind of level of insight. So maybe the industry... Well... But here's a great question, right? You know, and I, and I think what we're starting... To, and you're right, you know, what... I don't think we have seen the defense community automate the containment and the response at the same pace that the aggressors have automated the intrusions. You know, if I look at a lot of organizations, they're increasingly automating the detection, sure. But actually, 
um, you know, when you detect a breach, you know, why are you not containing that device? You know, and containment can be a spectrum again. It can be total isolation. It can be restricting bandwidth down so it's a trickle, right? You know, there, there's a spectrum of response. And I just don't think um, the blue teams necessarily have embraced that level and because they're too concerned about causing business interruption. Mm. When on the other end of that, you let that run and, you know, you don't catch it in time, the business interruption becomes far greater anyway. Right. And I think there is the, the role of the cybernet is, is to bring kind of those trickle point in the board and saying, okay, you know how to ensure, you know how to maybe do something about it, but it's still, still going to kill you or not. Yes, yeah, so that's right. You know, and, and one of the challenges that, that I gave one, which was, you know, it's not about having zero or one incident, right? We're going to have the incidents. It's about mean time to detection, mean time to containment, and mean time to recovery, right? That's mm -hmm. the performance metrics we care about. And, and really, um, let alone then, you know, what the impact overarchingly was. And when you, when people, when people, when they're explaining that, they, they get it, right? You know, right. You, know, that, 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 you know, we shouldn't trying to be aiming for zero risk, but with the events that we do have, we should be able to detect them quickly. We should be able to contain them quickly, recover, and then also, you know, the actual manifest impact on the organization should be minimized as possible. And that drives a different type of performance discussion than did we have any incidents this week? Well, Yes, we do. Well, it's, it's more data driven, and, and I think it's it's the maturity around the data rather than, um, rather than yes no. It's it's more nuanced than yes no, and, and it, it enable an executive to tell a better story of yes, we we are remediating, we're fixing things at these rates, is producing this part of risk, or even better, is is reducing our total potential or direct and indirect exposure to this level. And then we can contain the next number of days because we run an exercise. That's a very powerful answer of a CISO. That's right. You know, and I think, you know, one of the one for your for practitioner CISOs, a great conversation to have with the board and the exec is who do you want us to be able to protect against? You know, and you give them <laughs> a spectrum of attackers and capability. Because uh, everyone, they often start to, well, to everyone. Okay, so you want to protect against the full capabilities of insert terrifying for actor in their hundreds of millions of dollars of budgets. Well, no, we don't want to protect it against those. Okay, and you can actually have, end up having quite an informed discussion where it ends up getting to, well, we just don't want to be embarrassed. You know, so if someone actually does breach us and it is bad, that they are of sufficient caliber and quality and that we've got the basics right, you know, but that yeah. is, you know, and I've sat in some very large organizations that have said, we want to be impervious to everyone. And then you go, do you understand what that will cost? And then they very, you know, quickly change their perspective where they don't want to do that. Right. And, and I think that's, that's a very useful conversation. But this conversation has been brilliant. And as we come into a close, we don't want to live on a doom and gloom. Uh, and we have a tradition on the podcast to live on a positive note. So in, in your years of experience and, and view, what... Do you see us getting better or do you see the industry is getting better? Or what is your positive closing note, if you want? Yeah, so I think I'll leave, I'll leave three things for, for the listeners. One is the industry is more diverse than ever has been. And I mean that across every characteristic and type. And so by virtue of that, we have got more voices with fresher ideas. 
with a, a more kind of holistic set of views involved. So that, that is a net positive. The second is we do understand more than we ever have done around the problem, and we will continue to do so. And again, I think you look at some of the next generation computing architectures and programming languages and, and a lot of the vulnerability classes that they mitigate at the lowest levels. And again, that, that is a net positive. And I, and I think, you know, thirdly, we're going to win, right? You know, what, what shape, <laughs> size, color, and when is to be debated. But, but ultimately, you, you know, the world will incrementally improve with each month that goes past as everyone contributes. And again, we see that, you know, techniques that did work five years ago do not work now. Um, and so just kind of keep the faith, right? And, and keep pushing. And, and it may feel kind of dark and gloomy, but there's no need to be, right? You know, it, it's going to be a lot of fun and, and, and it's going to end up on a high. No, that, that's brilliant. And I think we, we got better at patching and fixing stuff and putting firewall in and those have become kind of the norm. But it wasn't like that five years ago. Well, and I would, yeah, and I would say that, you know, a couple of things, right? So Amazon in April, all S3 buckets now will be locked down by default. You know, right. you're seeing these large, like hyperscaler moves now, which clicks everyone overnight to a better world. And it's just going to be more of it. So we, loads of reason for optimism. Fantastic. And Oli, um, if somebody want to listen more about you, what you talk about, I know you have a blog. Uh, where can they find you? Yeah. Um, so you can uh, write a Substack every week. Um, which goes out, which summarizes weekly intelligence and and the, and the world the world of this is going on, and that's uh, uh, bluepurple.substack.com. Um, I don't do a podcast; I leave that to talented people like yourself. Um, <laughs> but you, you can read my writing every week. Brilliant! Thank you very much, Oli. It's been an absolute pleasure. And everybody, get out there, talk about risk, and it's a world that is getting better every day, but. It's a journey, so you need to get everybody of your board together. And if you're sizable enough, maybe think about a cybernet because it can be your ally. Thank you very much, Charlie. Thank you. And everybody, stay safe. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please leave us a review on Apple Podcast and post it on social media tagging Cybersecurity Cloud Podcast for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Discover other episodes at www.cybersecuritypodcast.com.